Your latest failure is a golden opportunity for you to get to know God better, to stand in a greater confidence and faith, and to give yourself a chance of overcoming that very temptation or challenge which caused you to stumble. What would you do if I said to you that we had sent out incognito camera teams? They were following you around with their GoPros, with their drones, watching your every move, and they were going to show everyone in church today what you've been up to. Would you freak out? Would you panic? Would you worry about how far those cameras followed you? Would you have confidence that actually, however shameful or however embarrassing or however challenging or however silly that event that they caught you in the midst of might be, that you have an opportunity through that situation to flourish as you follow Jesus. Now, when you think about it like that, our failures, our stumblings, our sin suddenly become opportunities that we would run towards, not for the sake of the sin, not for the sake of continuing in sin, but so that in those moments, we would get to know God better and learn how to walk in increasing freedom. We're finishing up a series today on falling forward, making the most of our failures. And today we're focusing on the idea of the necessity of getting up after we've fallen. Not the fact that we've fallen as a failure, but getting up after we've fallen. So I want to begin with a word of prayer. And if we can include in this time our baptism candidates, you know, they're taking a very important first step. For those of you who are already baptized, you know that you got baptized and then you probably did have a fall soon after that baptism, right? Uh, it's, walking in the light of the gospel doesn't mean that we're going to walk without sin, but it does mean we have a whole new skill set with how to follow Jesus in a deeper way. And each one of these wonderful candidates will need to be encouraged in this. You know, there are traditions in church where they say you shouldn't get baptized right until you're about to die because you're not allowed to sin afterwards. But baptism is a beginning point in the journey. It's a step with Jesus into the new life in Christ. And from there, week by week, month by month, year by year, we grow in our holiness and maturity and righteousness in Christ as we learn to get up from our mistakes. So let's pray. And if we can keep in mind our baptism candidates. Father, we come to you, the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow of turning, the good God who gives good gifts. And Father, we thank you that you are full of mercy and full of grace for us, not for the purpose of going out to sin willingly so that we might see more grace abound, but Father, for the purpose of knowing that wherever we might find ourselves today, you are bigger than our circumstances, bigger than our failure, bigger than our faults. And Lord, we pray, Father, particularly for these baptism candidates today. They're making a decision to follow Jesus in a new way, a life-giving way. And Father, we ask them that you would give them great courage to keep getting up when they stumble, when they fall, that they would continue to rise to the call of the Spirit, the call of grace, to flourish in who you've made them to be, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, have you ever fallen down physically? You know, I remember when I was a kid, I used to deliberately fall down so that I could get cuts on my knees and get, you know, the, the, the scabs and all of that and then pick the scabs off. Maybe metaphorically, you know you've fallen down. Maybe spiritually, you know that you've fallen down. When you begin to look at scriptures closely, we begin to find the image of standing, stumbling, and falling right throughout the Bible. 
that there are opportunities for us to engage with this idea of tripping up on the journey, which will enable us to walk a different way as we follow Christ. And one of the great passages that we might be thinking of off the back of that is Ephesians 6, where it says, stand and stand, and having done everything, keep standing. There are times as well in Scripture where lying down is purposeful, even positive when you've fallen, even if a little bit weird. Uh, And if you ever heard of the prophet Ezekiel, Now, Ezekiel had some crazy experiences in his life. He had times when God told him to walk around naked. He had times when God told him uh, great visions and dreams, and he had a vision of a uh, a great temple and a vision of a great river. Uh, But then one of the uh, prophetic signs that he was called to enact was to lie down on his side for 390 days. Now, I know we all love our rest, but how many of you would lie down for longer than a day? If you could, you would. (laughs) Well, in this um, scenario, this guy, Ezekiel, is asked by the Lord to lie down for 390 days as a prophetic sign of God's judgment on the people of Israel. And this is a sign of the siege that's being held over Israel for their wandering away from the Lord. And it's to show that God is in total control over the situations that they're facing, the time period, what they're going through, and when it's going to come to a resolution. And so he lies on his left side for the 390 days, and he lies on his right side for 40 days for Judah's sin. It seems incredible to us, this idea of someone lying down for so long. And he's given some crazy instructions. He's like, God, how am I going to eat? And he had some negotiation with God, and in the end, the negotiation landed on being able to cook using cow dung. I don't know how he convinced anyone to go shopping for him to cook his food, but he was in this weird situation. Anyway, digressing a lot, but the point I'm making of that is that there are times when you're instructed to be lying down, and they are positive purposes in this situation, God's sign of judgment with a promise of restoration for the people of Israel. But there are times when we might be caught lying down when we are totally kept outside of our purpose and our plan or what God has for our lives. And that lying down might be the result of a fall. It might be the result of sin. It might be the result of not having hope in our lives. Now, if you think about a man that Jesus found, he's a man that he found by a pool in Bethesda where he searched among all of these men that were sick and found men and women who were sick and found one man 40 years who had been in the same place, unable to climb down into what were healing waters. This man was in a position of lying down, totally kept outside of his God-created purpose. And this is the area which I want to focus because we have a challenge as a generation. This generation that we live in now is more than any other the, the generation that will lie down that will step out of its purpose, that will step out of its plan and take an easy route. I'll give you an example. Carnival, we've got coming up at the end of the month. Every single year, there is the Carnival Strongman and Woman competition. And you see all sorts of people walking by, and some of the people that walk by, men look like they could lift the car, women look like they could really lift some serious weight, and they just stroll past, They, they don't even... They might have a little look. And in their mind, they're probably going, I could win if I wanted to. I could beat you if I wanted to. You ever come across someone that said that? I could if I could be bothered, I would beat you. 
And yet the problem with us as a generation generally is that we have convinced ourselves that we could do something without ever actually trying to do something. And so instead of uh, being undefeated because we've been winning, we're still undefeated because we haven't even competed. God's calling us as a generation to rise to the challenges that he has before us. And that means that we need to be willing to not just be no try or one try people, but people that will keep trying and keep trying and keep trying and keep trying until we see the purposes of God realized in our lives. So for those of you who lift, you don't just lift once. You lift for reps. You lift set after set, day after day, week after week to get strong, right? Otherwise, someone will be looking at you saying, do you even lift, bro? But the reality is that we have got to cultivate a lifestyle where as Christians, we keep engaging with the challenges of getting up and moving forward and getting up and moving forward. And if we see a challenge, we take it on. And if we fall, we get up and move forward once again. And in that context, uh, we do see lots of uh, great YouTube videos. I don't know if you've seen these YouTube videos, that motivating YouTube videos that look at people that have gotten up from many trials. We think of Abraham Lincoln. He's one of the guys that comes up in these YouTube videos about how many times he'd failed at this and lost elections at that and uh, you know, got beaten at this and that before becoming the president. My question, though, to us is, as a church, do we encourage people to get up after they fall? Do we encourage people to get up and continue to pursue Christ with all that they are? Do we have a message of hope to share? Now, we know we should say yes, but then do we? Reason that this is a challenge for us, I think, is because uh, not just this church, many churches, probably the church as a whole, uh, without talking too generally, is guilty of not having helped people get up when they fall. We can all think of examples where we've seen people stumble, we've seen people fall, and then not only are they down, but they get kept down by judgment, by condemnation, by being trodden down on, by not being shown how to move forward and how to get up. And yet when we look at the grace of God, the message of Jesus Christ, that is totally the opposite side of the spectrum. How can we as a church be reminded, as the church of Jesus Christ, be reminded what it is to follow Jesus and to walk in grace? And so the core of my message to you today, or the challenging line that I want us to walk away with is, get up by grace. Get up by grace. Now, this will hopefully crystallize when we take a little look at the phrase, fall from grace. Have any of you ever heard that phrase, fall from grace? Ooh, he fell from grace. Ooh, she fell from grace. What do you think it means? We would probably think it means they sinned, right? So they were in a state of grace, and then they sinned, and then that was it, they fell from grace. But is that really what it means? Is that really what God is saying or what that phrase is intended for us to understand. And if we see someone that we know has fallen from grace, what assumptions do we make about them? Do we make assumptions about their state of life, holiness, character, uh, awareness of their own sin and, and, and shortcomings? We make a lot of assumptions, but perhaps we need to go back and reconsider 
something deep that might challenge us in the way that we enable people to walk by grace. I want to read a passage for you, Galatians 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Again, that image of standing. And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. This is a particular problem that he's addressing at the time where they were trying to encourage Gentile men to take the Jewish sign of religion, circumcision, in order to prove that they were serious about their faith and they were trying to impose this on Christians. However, the principle stands, whether we're talking about circumcision or not, of returning to or standing by a list of rules and regulations. And he continues by saying this, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. And listen out for this, because this is a phrase we were just talking about a moment ago. You have fallen away from grace. Hang on a minute. We think that falling away from grace means someone has fallen into sin. What Paul is saying here is, if you are trying to be justified by the law, then you've fallen from grace. I'll highlight for you in a minute what this means at a deeper level, but I want you to think about that. There's a problem with what we think falling from grace is. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ, Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Falling from grace. Let me ask you, how many of you would say that you're a good Christian? Okay, we need to go back to like 101. <laughs> okay, how many of you would say you're a better Christian than the person next to you? Now, you might not say it, but you probably think it on the inside. <laughs> you still might think it on the inside. And the challenge that we have is when we start to compare ourselves with the people around us, and start to assume that we are better Christians than them, we are assuming that we are standing in Christ by our own goodness. I'm better than you because I don't do this. I'm better than you because I do do that. If we're standing in our own strength, there's a problem. But then what about when we fall? Not if we fall, but when we Fall, whether it's into sin, whether it's just a failure to achieve something, whether it's a task that you set yourself that you didn't complete, a diploma or a degree that you're going for that you didn't complete, whatever it might be, when you fall, what do you do? There are three choices. The first is the choice that I was saying our generation has chosen. I'm going to stay here. I'm just not going to try. I'm just not going to get up. I'm going to feel sorry for myself. I'm going to wallow in guilt for the fact that I did fall. And I also don't want to try to get up because I'm afraid of the condemnation that the church is going to bring to me. That's option one. Option two is when you might get yourself stirred up enough to be seriously holy. You know those moments where, you know, you knew that you fell into sin. You knew that you made a huge mistake and you got before God and you said this, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to read my Bible every day from tomorrow. 15 chapters. 
I'm going to pray every day for an hour from tomorrow. I'm going to give tithes from my next paycheck. Not this paycheck. I'm going to be a blessing to people when I see them. The next sick person I see on the street, I'm going to go up to them and tell them about the healing power of Jesus. We give ourselves a whole list of regulations that we are going to keep to make ourselves feel better about the fact that we just sinned. But the problem with the statement is subtle, but deceitful. I am going to do it. Have any of you ever promised yourself that you're going to be more spiritual in January than you were in December? Then you know what I'm talking about. And the problem is, at that moment, a spiritual pride creeps in. I have capacity to be holy. I have ability to walk as God wants me to walk without God's help. That's why we love sermons where we're given hard challenges. Oh, pastor was preaching real hard today. He said, don't do this and don't do that. And don't do oh yeah, I love it, I love it. I'm going to write a list down, make a little list of things I'm not going to do. We love those kinds of sermons because it feeds that spiritual pride. But the problem is it leads us into a deeper bondage, a form of godliness without the power. I am going to be holy by my own strength one day. Now, I've tried this, and I'm sure some of you else, uh, others have tried this as well. And I hope you've come to the point where you really realize really, really deeply it's not going to get you anywhere. Actually, you'll probably end up more frustrated with God, more judgmental of others, more hopeless about a possible future in grace, because the lie that you're going to do it on your own is unfulfilled. So this is the option that I want to encourage you towards, option three. And I want to encourage you with uh, a force where it changes the way you relate to the living God. I open today by saying your stumbling, your falling can actually lead you deeper into relationship with and knowledge of God. This third option, I'm going to surrender to God's grace. Now, the reason I've specifically chosen that word surrender is because if you ever do personality type studies and so on, I definitely have a very strong dominant streak. Now, what dominant means is I can do it and I can get results. So I will always tell God that I can do it, don't worry. And then he will always show me, you can't do it unless I help you, so stop trying. The only way to get through that is surrendering. But what does it look like? What does it look like to surrender to God's grace? Imagine the sin that you know you fall into. Imagine the ways that you know you make huge mistakes. You probably get on your face typically and say, God, I'm going to be better next time. But what would it look like to take a different approach to grace? Now, let me be a bit provocative by saying this. The most people, when they've sinned, don't ever actually repent. Most people, most Christians, feel guilty for a little bit. And because they feel guilty, they feel like they should be, feel bad about what they've done. And so they might apologize to God. Begrudgingly, maybe.
But apologizing to God means nothing when five minutes later, five days later, five weeks later, you're carrying out the same sin. Repentance means we don't return to the same sin. So if all we've done is apologize, we need to recognize that and actually move further into a place where we can genuinely repent. What does that look like? Well, it looks like starting here. God is good. Mostly when we sin or when bad stuff happens to us, we say God is bad because he made it happen to us or he allowed it to happen to us. We've got to start from the place that God is good and God is holy. Why is that the starting point? Because you're not focusing on me, I, you're focusing on God, good. When you focus on God, good, you have a place where you can begin to move forward because the God who is good is hoping to work in your life. And the Bible says in Romans 2 verse 4, it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Repentance isn't a simple act of saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is a process which is initiated by the goodness of God. So we start with dwelling on God's goodness and God's holiness. The moment you're thinking about how good God has been to you and how holy he is, the sin that you have just committed becomes abhorrent to you. It's like when you know that someone is being better to you than you deserve and you just feel so guilty about what you've said about them, what you've done to them, and you know that you really let them down. But when you dwell on God's goodness, he begins to lead us to a place where he shows us what it is possible to be like with him. Now, in that place of thinking, well, I have failed in this area of sin, start to think, God, what could my life look like without being controlled by anger, rage, Fear, anxiety, lust, money issues, power issues, hatred of people issues. What can my life look like without those? What can my life look like in love, soundness of mind, purity, holiness? And in that place, the connection with God's goodness and who he has created us to be, hopefully creates a desire in our heart. Yes, God, I want to be holy before you. I want to walk out that righteous life that you have for me. Amen? That's the point where you're really coming to repentance. But repentance is completed when you recognize, God, that looks great, but I can't do this by myself. I'm going to try harder, but I'm not going to get to it. I'm going to give my best, but I'm not going to get there. I surrender. I cannot do this alone. God, I need your grace and mercy. Any of you ever needed God's grace or God's mercy? Hallelujah. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God has exactly what you need. He has the mercy and the grace that you need. And the moment that you will come to him and say, I surrender, God, I need your grace. I need your mercy. He gives you all that you need. Now, there are some times in life when you will go into a set of circumstances that change the direction of your life forever. 
So for me, that happened around the time of university when I went into university as a straight A student and I began drinking and, and fighting. And by the end of university, I got a third class alcohol degree. I've told you about this a few times before. But that radically changed the trajectory of my life. And I could have, in that fallen state, carried on, and I did carry on for a number of years, probably four or five years beyond that, of not being able to get into the life that I dreamed about, the potential that I knew God had created me for. I was held in a holding pattern and I you know, would go, cycle through drinking myself through further, into further problems, being angry at God, trying a little bit to get out of the hole and not really, really being successful. Until I came to a place where I said, God, I need you back in my life and I need your grace for now. You're going to have to give me a lot of mercy for all that mess that went before. And I'm going to need your grace for now so I can move forward with you. What we tend to do is think, because I made that huge mistake back 4, 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, maybe it's a relationship you broke off. Maybe it's an abortion you had. Maybe it was breaking up with your family in a terrible blazing round. You've never had a restored relationship with them. And you say to yourself, if only I could go back. To fix it, I would, I would turn back the top clocks of time. I would do anything, God, I would give my... God just wants you to say, I need mercy for what went before. I need grace for what is coming now. And then in that place, God begins to show you how to move forward. He gives you words of wisdom, how to, words of knowledge, what is going on so that you can begin to navigate through situations. Actually, if you don't want to walk in grace now, there's no point in getting words of wisdom or knowledge because you need to be able to start from where you are right now with the mess you've created, the relationships you're going to have to fix, the things you're going to have to say sorry for, the people you're going to have to make good with. But the moment you start to say, God, I need your grace, what happens? God begins to take you on this journey of picking you up, of restoring you bit by bit, of bringing things back together, of making a life that was formerly impossible for you because of your huge mistake now possible. You know, there are people that have lived lives of huge promiscuity that have met with God and now walk in such purity that you would never know that they were living a life of terrible sin in that way before. There are people now who have such great financial stewardship that you would never know that they used to gamble away all of their finances and make huge messes. You'd never know that a pastor standing in front of you used to put people in hospital for fun. Because that's what God can do in terms of changing people's lives. And this is such an important lesson for you Baptism candidates to get hold of. I hope you do get hold of it, that you need the grace of God in the life that you're called to walk with Christ. But that's us thinking, individual, how can I move forward with God? How can we change as a church? I think we need to. I think we're real good at judging people, condemning them, kicking them out, helping them not achieve their potential. What would it look like for us to walk in grace, uphold the goodness of God rather than pushing for the recognition of their failure first, living graciously, ever tried that? And showing the path forward for people. We need to seriously rethink what it is, first for us as Christians, to reconnect with God and get up from our failures, but then also to blaze a trail so that other people can also get up 
This house should be full of testimonies of I was a prostitute. Now I'm a mother in a, a, an adop adoption home. I used to be a gang member or a drug dealer, and now I'm mentoring people as they walk with Jesus. Our church should be full of people that were bankrupt and now running uh, businesses that glorify the Lord, and so on and so on, because we show people how to get up from their failure and walk forward in the grace of God. We're going to have to think about these things. We're going to have to challenge ourselves on our judgments, our prejudices, our easy, I'm better than you spirituality. Your spirituality means nothing until you're esteeming and edifying other people around you to help them follow Jesus. I could talk a lot more. I think I should quit. I do want to say one more thing. I think I need to. So this is really important, this process of fall, get up, fall, get up. Get up by grace. Get up by grace. And we should become so good at getting up by grace that we know that we can overcome in any situation. And if you've been knocked down, you get back up again. And if you've been knocked down, you get back up again. But I also want to say that there is another level of maturity beyond that that God calls for from us. I want you to think for a moment about Jacob. Jacob cheated his brother Esau out of his inheritance and his birthright. He then ended up going in fear out of his mother's home into another place which was relatives of his, and being cheated by his uncle for 21 years to be able to marry the woman he loved and the woman he didn't love, and also to get his wealth together. And in that journey, Jacob stumbled and fell and got up and stumbled and fell and got up and began to see Jesus, uh, God do miracles, so much so that Jacob could pray and, and act in a way which saw goats, of a particular type of color being born and, or, uh, or uh, fur design, whatever it was, spotted or speckled. Um, he could see God take all of the wealth of his dodgy uncle and turn it to his side. He saw God do miracles left, right, and center. And then we see Jacob coming back to find Esau. And Jacob, who had seen miracle after miracle and got up after failure and got up after failure, when he came back to Esau, was still afraid. He still had to wrestle with God because he hadn't understood what God was doing in his life by showing him how to get up. When you learn how to get up, God is calling you to ask, why is it that he's calling me to get up? Who is he making me to be? This new creation idea. Who are you in Christ? And Jacob had to wrestle with God to the point of his hip being dislocated so we could get to know who he was. Then he gets restored with Esau. Moses had a problem. Moses never learned his lesson that he could have spoken. That's why he ended up getting judged at the end. Too many details. We can't focus on that. But the point I'm making is this. Don't just learn how to get up from failure, but learn what it means about who Christ is making you to be. Because God wants to see his sons and his daughters being revealed in glory because us being revealed in the glory that he's given us glorifies him. Felt it was important to say that. What do we need to do from here? Learn to get up, but not get up with promises of I'm going to do better. Get up with words of hope. I trust in my good God and that he will give me grace today. Second, consider deeply who that means Christ, that Jesus is saying you are. In the image of turning from a prostitute to a mother, 
If the mother still carried the image of prostitute, she would not be effective in what God has given her to do. But if she embraces who she is now as a mother, she walks in the fullness of who Christ has made her to be. If the gang member keeps walking the identity as a gang member rather than as a mentor and spiritual father, you get the image. Third, as a consequence of these things, what is that going to mean for me helping the people around me? I'm going to love the richest that I can. I'm going to be someone that shares the unconditional love of God with people around me. My hope today is that something I've said will encourage you to take hope. Not in your capacity to do this on your own, but in your capacity to trust a God who will help you. If you will reach out to him and ask him for his grace, if you'll reach out and ask him for his mercy, then he will strengthen your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight a path for you to walk in his purpose for your life.